And you're listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. You're here with me, James Anderson, and my co-host. Eli Kramer. And we are going to set up an interview that I did with two organizers at the University of California, Santa Cruz, at UCSC. There has been quite a lot of tumult and turmoil taking place. Uh, dating back, uh, well, a little, a uh, few months, I would say. There are now some 80 grad students, as of the last week or so, who have been fired by the UC president, Janet Napolitano. They've been fired because they have been on strike uh, since the uh, beginning of the, the uh, winter quarter, and Prior to that, during the fall quarter, there were a large number of uh, graduate students working as teaching assistants there at UCSC who opted to withhold grades. So as many of our listeners probably know, teaching assistants do a lot of the the grunt work uh, that professors prefer not to. So they will grade papers, sometimes most, if not all the papers, they'll also, you know, uh, calculate and, and tally uh, point totals and grades, and sometimes even submit final grades uh, for the classes that they TA for. And this past fall, sort of in the midst of a very militant COLA movement, a cost of living adjustment movement that had popped off uh, at UCSC a few months earlier, there were, uh, there was if not near unanimous, there was a majoritarian decision by grad students there to decide to engage in a wildcat strike. It's a wildcat strike because the graduate students across the UC system actually are covered by the United Auto Workers uh, contract. They're all part of the the same statewide union that negotiates with the University of California uh, to try to improve, you know, grad students' working conditions and pay and, and all the rest. But the last, and they have a history, the uh, UAW uh, grad students, grad student worker union that represents the TAs and uh, other folks across the UC system, research assistants too. Uh, they have a history, a pretty militant history. They went on a, a two-day strike back in 2014. I actually wrote a, a piece about this a couple of years back. But recently, the last contract that they settled, it was not up to par as far as folks in Santa Cruz were concerned because it didn't take into account the you know egregious cost of living there, especially when contrasted with uh, other UC campuses, UC Riverside in, in particular because the uh, chancellor there, Lareve, actually came to UCSC from the University of California, Riverside. And one of the uh, main pillars of their their strike was calling for this COLA, this cost of living adjustment, which amounts to about $1,400 more per month, which they would need to be on par with uh, students, uh, grad students at a place like Riverside in terms of being able to afford to live where they work. And after months of the administration kind of ignoring their uh, requests for this cost of living adjustment, 
Uh, and again, not being able to go on an official strike because of the no strike clause in their existing contract. There was a large number of grad students there with a lot of support from undergrads too, following a number of assemblies and you know, uh, long meetings and a lot of online and digital organizing too. Uh, they opted to withhold grades, which are still being withheld. Uh, that uh, at the end of uh, the fall quarter there, and by the way, they're on a quarter system like most, like several UC campuses are instead of a, a semester system. And then they escalated the strike when classes resumed during the winter quarter. There was an altercation on campus where the UC had called in campus police in riot gear. This was February 12th, and about 17 folks were arrested. Some uh, uh, some were uh, not treated all that well from uh, by the police. There are some accounts of that that you can read online. And uh, a few days after that, I think it was on the 14th, so a nice Valentine's Day letter from the UC president, Napolitano. Uh, she published an open letter threatening to fire grad students who were striking, and she followed through on that promise just recently. And so there, there are plans still there at UCSC. And this, by the way, took place after uh, the interview that I did with the, the two organizers, Yulia Jelichinskaya uh, and Tony Boardman. And so I'm uh, really interested to see just how the organizers respond. Uh, they have been holding assemblies since, you know, some 80, 74 to 80 folks were let go and uh, and and I'm kind of curious as to how the university is going to one fill those positions because it's not going to be easy, and then two uh, how the cola movement is uh, going to continue to evolve because it it seems to be spreading. So there were strikes at Berkeley and at Davis, I believe, and possibly also Santa Barbara, and also COLA movements that have cropped up across you know, other UC campuses as well. I think today, folks at UC Berkeley were planning an all-day walkout with you know, a rally on campus to support those who'd been fired at Santa Cruz. And so that's the situation that uh, we are uh, that they're facing at present. The, in the interview, Yulia and Tony go into much more detail about uh, the steps in their organizing efforts that kind of led to the Wildcat strike and the buildup to it, and also, uh, you know, touch on things like the interplay between the organizing that takes place on these online spaces, oftentimes out of necessity, right, because there are international grad students who aren't who you know leave during break and still would like to participate. Also, one of the great things that uh, they talk about in, in the interview is the way that uh, folks were emboldened by online communications. So the administration been sending out these placating emails, uh, which really offered nothing in, in substance. And you know, at one point, you had a grad student who. Uh, who just started replying all to those emails saying, you know what, just pay me. And, and that kind of one thing led to another and, and uh, resulted in the collective action that we saw in the fall and, and that we're still seeing currently. And Eli, I'm curious, and you, you've, uh, have you followed 
anything that has been going on at uh, Santa Cruz? Yes, uh, both through you and Justine in the media, even in Chronicle of Higher Education, there's starting to be stories. Um, so I'll be eager uh, later in the interview today to have a discussion with you about what happens from here. Okay, great. Well, I think that is a sufficient introduction. So with no further ado, I'll uh, turn it over to the interview and you can learn more about the strike from Yulia and Tony. And I'm here again with organizers from the University of California, Santa Cruz. We encountered some recording issues when I started the interview previously. So I wanted to go back and wondered if you two could introduce yourselves, share your names, your affiliation with the university, uh, research and organizing interest if you'd like, and then uh, what sort of organizing or activist work you did prior to getting involved in the cost of living adjustment or COLA campaign and then the strike at UCSC. Sure. Um, my name is Yulia. I am a film and digital media um, PhD candidate. I do research around um, visual regimes of settler innocence. And my research is primarily located in Palestine and Israel. But I am also looking at um, the North American context and the ways in which um, geographies, settler geographies here erase um, violence against indigenous people. So um, when I was coming to Santa Cruz, I imagined that I would get involved in some sort of organizing because my research is um, activist and action oriented. Um, and before COLA, I was somewhat active in um, organizing around housing justice and homelessness in Santa Cruz. And um, yeah, I had a sort of complicated relationship with the union, which uh, I have less complicated relationship with now. <laughs> um, I'm Tony Boardman. I am a PhD candidate in literature in my fourth year at UCSC. I hate to talk about my research, so I won't do that. Um, my organizing interests uh, are for full communism now. <laughs> um, but uh, sort of prior to... I, I concur with that. Right. Prior to coming to Santa Cruz, uh, I was uh, mainly organizing with uh, with refugees and asylum seekers uh, in Glasgow. Um, and um, currently, it's worth also saying that me and Yulia uh, work with the, work with, we organize with the, the DSA chapter locally um, and with the union and sort of with the Graduate Student Association. Great, thank you both. And <laughs> And we started organizing um, a housing justice campaign around, that also included undergraduate students that sort of shaped to become the COLA campaign. But all of the calculations and all of the ideas for COLA came out of this um, UC Santa Cruz wide housing justice campaign. I think to add as well in 2018, um, so 2018 was the Janus versus AFSME decision, um, which meant that non-members wouldn't pay any dues anymore for unions. Um, so that was a big hit on the statewide union. We also 
And Santa Cruz had an unsuccessful rent control campaign, um, which was de right. defeated by about 65%. Um, you know, lots of like, lots of money coming in from big realtor associations and things. Um, so after these, after these, these, these real setbacks, we were, we were trying to work out where to, to build power again um, with like, you know, we we had we were stripped back from like we didn't have any any paid union organizers on campus anymore um we lost funding for like membership meetings and things like this so we were trying to work out where we could build momentum again and build a sort of more militant base yeah and and the original housing campaign imagined that um what needs to happen immediately is a total rent freeze on on-campus housing which would be a helpful step for undergrads who have to live on campus in at least for a year, but is not a massive help for graduate students who don't really have a lot of on-campus housing at UCSC. So the way out of this predicament became COLA. So we, we realized that what needs to happen is we need to be paid more to afford to live in Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so yeah, the the the, year, the housing campaign we had had the year before, um, I think was a was a re was a really good campaign, um, but uh, one that we kind of struggled to articulate. It was it was making lots of demands for undergraduates, um, and the 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 push this year for like a single demand campaign for graduate students um, is designed not to like you know, take away from the undergraduates or move direct, move like attention away from, from undergraduates. But it's really like a, you know, a focused, easily, um, a, a focused campaign that's really easy to be articulated and from which other movements can build off. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's pretty much what happened. Um, but, you know, that year when we started organizing in 2018, we would have seven people in all of the organizing meetings and union meetings and organizing committee meetings. And it's the same seven people. So um, the decision to focus on a single demand campaign was driven by the desire to build a solid base. And this is the campaign that's, yeah, very legible and easy to get behind and easy to rally um, folks for. And so that's, that's what happened. We, the campaign grew very quickly um, and became very popular and very well supported. And out of our quality demand, other groups and other unions and other students um, started to articulate their demands. Okay, so could you describe the events leading up to the strike and maybe explain for our listeners what made it a wildcat grading strike and what a wildcat strike is? Sure. Well, I mean, so, so uh, the end of last school year, um, we were trying to work out how to popularize this. Um, we, people organizing with the union and sort of outside the union, decided the best to take positions in the Graduate Student Association, um, running on a on a cola platform, um, which we all won. Um, so we. Uh, then you know used some gsa funds we set up a retreat for organizers where we worked out like our escalation plan for the year um which involved uh 
we, we had this first action, this rally, which we got maybe, I don't know, 300 people out to. Yeah, yeah. Which is, which is a quite significant number for um, considering the size of UCSC graduate student body. We are about 1,800 grads. Mm-hmm. So 300 people who turned out for the rally like, is really significant. And that's 1,800 grads with 800 working TAs about at yeah. the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we had that. We had um, a camp out at the base of, of, of campus where we, mm-hmm. you know, had food together, had organizing meetings. We had um, a local organizer who's been around for, for a long time come and give like a sort of history of, of, of organizing in, in Santa Cruz. Um, and then we had this plan. So, so from that, we're getting all of these new people coming um, and all of these different ideas about where to take it. And from, from that, new people start saying, oh, we should have a speak out uh, as our next event where we talk about it situations in the cost of living and what it's like to be a grad student here because we have all of these stories um and we would have it at Kerr Hall uh, where the administration is mm-hmm. um and we 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 were we were set to do that and then it got cancelled because of rain <laughs> but uh in instead some some graduate students started emailing the administration saying we we, we gave you our call a demand like a month ago this was the first rally was like a, a rally to give our demand in person to the chancellor. Um, and I don't know, do you want to talk a bit about the email? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, it literally happened on the day of the speak out um, that didn't happen in person, but um, graduate students had used the email space to speak out against admins in action And so the very first email early in the morning articulated graduate students' frustration and anger because it's been almost exactly a month since we delivered the demand to the chancellor at our first rally, and we have heard nothing. So it's literally been a month of silence. Um, They, and we felt like the admin is totally unaccountable, is not taking our demand seriously, do not understand the conditions we have to live and labor under, Um, And so students started to speak out over email. And we've developed this uh, communication tactic where when admin emails everyone, when we reply back, we can CC all of the graduate students. So all of that communication um, would include the administration, but also all of the grads at UCSC. So that first angry email from a graduate student um, produced a response from the vice chancellor of the campus who said, apparently unaware that we canceled the speak out, but um, she said, you know, I welcome dialogue and we respect your freedom of speech. However, you need to be aware of these articles in the code of conduct that can basically get you suspended. <laughs> and um, and all of the grads are CC'd on this. So, um, People took it to mean to be very threatening and they weren't having it. So dozens of grads started to respond to the threatening email saying, uh, fuck you, pay me. <laughs> like, no, why you cannot treat us like that? Um, and so basically the first calls for a grading strike came out of that email chain. And I gotta say, it's, I think, 
close to 50 emails accumulated by the end of the day in that email chain. It got really heated in certain moments, but um, what became clear is that the campaign had to move a lot faster than we imagined. That the campaign already gathered so much support and the conditions are so dire that we have to sort of seize the moment. Um, and if people are calling for a strike, maybe it's time to strike. Do you wanna, yeah. So yeah, the, I think it was the next day we had like a union organizers meeting. Um, and it was just like like packed. I think at that meeting, I was really of the belief that we were not going to have a grading strike, and we were going to take this energy and, and and push into the next quarter because we had talked about as part of our escalation plan for the year, um, a grading strike being something we would do, we would work towards, we would build momentum for over the um, up, up up to the spring quarter, which is uh, you know starting in in April. Yeah. Um, and instead of that, we, uh, so, so we got to this union meeting and realized there was actually quite a lot of momentum for this. We put out a poll um, and within a couple of days, we had how many, like 400? Yeah, about 400 students responded to the strike poll saying, uh, we're ready to strike now. So yeah, everything that we had, um, we, we couldn't, I, I don't think we could do anything to resist that really i don't think it would be wise and i'm really happy we did <laughs> yeah. um, because uh you know it, it, it wasn't going to look like a like a vote where you say like oh we get 50 percent or something it's it's like no th these are these are graduate students who are going to go on strike <laughs> this is just like this is going to happen so yeah um, and it felt like you know it wasn't our hands anymore 400 people said i'm gonna strike tomorrow so it wasn't um the decision made by some sort of organizing group it's it was really uh, a decision of those 400 people who said it doesn't matter to me what you're doing i'm striking tomorrow um so our our role became you know to sort of communicate and navigate uh communication with those people and trying to present um some of the risks of the strike but also the benefits of going on strike the day after um, and so we called for a general assembly that, yeah, the call came out like Saturday afternoon, Sunday, we had the assembly that was attended by about 250 people. Um, and we talked about the risks. So uh, going on a grading strike meant that it was going to be a wildcat strike, which means that um, the statewide union, well, and the union in general, cannot be involved. The union cannot call for a strike because uh, we have a no strike clause in our contract. Um, so the strike was not authorized by the statewide because it, it just cannot be um, during the duration of the contract under the, you know, the current labor laws of this country, which like still bewilder me, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but, so we had to explain that there is a possibility of our pay being docked. However, because it's a grading strike, the labor that we are not performing is just the 30 minutes of like actually entering the grades um, into the registrar's form. 
So all of the labor of teaching and grading and proctoring exams and grading papers and giving comments, we have performed. And the only labor the admin could, um, you know, possibly um, dock the pay for is the, yeah, the 30 minutes that we would forfeit um, of entering the grades. And yeah, TAs and graduate student instructors were convinced and we went on a strike. Mm -hmm. and, and what's the status of the strike and the COLA campaign at present? Has that energy and all the militancy from the fall quarter carried over into the winter quarter? Yeah, so um, the, the funny thing about it is we had most of this, this organizing was done in, in finals week. So um, we had we had finals week. Um, some representatives of, of graduate students went and um, like set up a meeting with administration, told them we would be at a certain place at a certain time. We had a, we got a, a really big rally outside, um, and the administration didn't show up and told us that they uh, legally weren't allowed to meet with us, um, which has continued to be their line for pr pretty much ever, ever since. Um, so anyway, we, we, we did that and then everybody, uh, well, lo lots of people went home. Uh, <laughs> uh, lots of, yeah. Um, yeah, for the duration of the winter break. For, for the winter break. So kind of everything was happening over, over email, over the Signal app, the messaging app. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so, so uh, that was like an interesting feature of, of, of the, the strike that we went on strike and then there was nobody there. <laughs> um, and then, so yeah, the, uh, the start of this quarter, we held another general assembly and um, outlined like a few uh, escalation tactics, including, um, well, continuing to, to withhold fall grades, which was pretty universally supported yeah um, which wasn't even an escalation like we are doing that it's not an escalation right uh -huh, uh -huh. um yeah uh, with okay so so that withholding uh, final grades for for winter quarter mm -hmm. um the possibility of a full teaching strike um and the possibility of withholding all winter grades yeah um which uh i think some sounds frightening for somebody for, for some people but but really is uh often just means uh keeping grades off this this this, this service canvas which um which, which admin has access to which admin has access to and which you wouldn't tend to put grades on up until maybe like two years ago mm -hmm. um so yeah there was there was another poll sent around with more sort of with, with more questions about more of these these uh these uh, these, these actions um TAs and GSIs overwhelmingly voted to go on strike again. We had an increase in numbers to, to withhold final grades for winter quarter. Um, lots of TAs also withholding uh, winter grades throughout the quarter as well. Um, yeah, and the other, the other action and the other escalation strategy that we proposed that was very well supported um, in the poll was a sick-out strike. So... Our contract guarantees at least two protected sick days uh, for each quarter for each academic student employee. 
Mm-hmm. And we decided to take a sick day in a coordinated manner, um, in a coordinated manner um, on January 22nd. So the, the date was chosen to coincide with the regents meeting in San Francisco. So um, dozens of people from the UCSC campus went to that meeting and others um, sort of modeling after a full day that we had at the camp out. They had a full day of community care and students just gathered together in the library and they spent some time talking about the conditions, you know, of their mental and physical health, about the conditions of their life in Santa Cruz, of how um, being underpaid affects their health, but also their academics. Um, yeah, and so the, the sick out was um, very successful, I would say. Yeah, and it's also worth noticing that the, the UC Santa Barbara also went on a sick out strike with us that day as well. Um, so th- there's been call campaigns that have, have cropped up on different different campuses at Santa Barbara, uh, Davis just rolled one out. Berkeley's had one since like the first week, um, and uh, yeah, so so it, it it's really energizing to see these actions. Sorry, to see these actions uh, spreading across across the UC um, to see where where it'll go from here. Yeah, I think the the sort of the growth of the movement across different campuses has been the most exciting part um, of organizing this quarter. And I wanted to clarify for our listeners quickly that uh, UC Santa Cruz is on a, a quarter system. So as opposed to, say, a semester system, having a, a, a fall and spring semester like some colleges do, uh, UC Santa Cruz has quarters. So that's what uh, you're referring to there in case there was some confusion. Now, you mentioned yeah. the COLA campaigns uh, that started up at UC Santa Barbara and at Davis. Uh, what do you... Where do you see those go to, going? Like, how do you see this movement spreading to other UC campuses or maybe beyond? Like, engage in a little bit of prediction for us, if you will. You want to talk about that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's sort of just emerging. Um, I mean, one ex- exciting development is that uh, was it last week. Time is strange in color land, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, th- I think last week uh, the statewide mm-hmm. union issued a statement mm-hmm. saying that um, that they they want to reopen bargaining around cost of living. Um, so the the the, the, um, the line that UCSC had previously taken was um, they, they can't meet with the union. Um, it would be illegal for all of these different reasons. Um, and uh, the, 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 the statewide union might file an unfair labor practice for, uh, for us, for, 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 for going on strike. Um, so that's, that's something that, that really engages uh, the, the statewide. Um, right, just to clarify, so... Um, we we saw the administration using that line as an excuse. We did not we did not imagine statewide filing an unlawful labor practice against UCSC. Yeah. But the admin would use that line sort of as as this threatening um, 
issue that, you know, they cannot overcome. And that's the reason why they can't negotiate with us. So the statewide coming out with this uh, letter saying, no, we demand to bargain. We demand that you reopen bargaining is a really um, massive show of support for the movement. Um, and like clearly that indicates that they're not going to file an unlawful labor practice against the university. So they literally don't have an excuse not to meet with us anymore. They're just not. And the union that represents grad student workers across the UC system, UAW Local 2865, what you're referring to, uh, they the un union was known for being militant and driven by grassroots direct action, participatory democracy and all that a few years back. But I got the sense that something changed at least a little. Uh, so what role do you see unions playing in this struggle going forward or your union specifically? You know, we, so about two weeks ago when the winter quarter started, another union on campus that represents service workers, um, it's the AFSCME union who has been in bargaining for over two years um one of the units of that union it's skilled workers that are called k7 workers who represent uh, electricians plumbers carpenters other skilled workers they went on an indefinite labor strike starting day one of winter quarter and for us it was such an amazing example of militant union organizing and, you know, we would come to their picket line and have breakfast with the workers and talk about organizing. And we heard that, you know, they decided to take this action because they were really inspired by our Wildcat. And then our movement got really inspired by their indefinite mm -hmm. strike. So what I'm seeing is uh, a really massive force that's coming out of rank-and-file militant union organizing right now. And what ended up happening is two weeks into their indefinite strike, K7 signed the contract. And then the day of the Regents meeting, just a few days ago on January 23rd, AFSCME, the massive statewide union representing service workers across the UC, signed a historic contract. So what we're seeing is that building power across different unions, building power through withholding our labor is precisely what gets the goods. It's not years of bargaining. It's not years of peaceful negotiations with the administration. It is direct action that wins. So, um, seeing those historic wins happening right now in front of our eyes is really inspiring. Yeah, and within our union as well, actually today um, there's a joint council meeting um, of all the different campuses at San Diego, which a number of our organizers have gone down to, to attend and to talk about COLA. And, um, and there, you know, a, a lot of the, the unions will be central to these campaigns at the different campuses when it happens. Um, so our organizers are going to try and push the union to to really strongly support COLA to, um, especially when, if, if, the, if the union sits down to, to meet with the, with the university, for, for, the, for the COLA arguments to be led by Santa Cruz organizers as well. Um, 
So I'm wondering, how do you see the COLA campaign and the strike in relation to, say, the condition and quality of public higher education in California? So for those who don't know the University of California system, it's part of California's three-tier higher ed structure, along with the California State Universities and the community colleges. So I wondered if maybe you could speak to how important you think the UC campuses, like yours there in Santa Cruz, how important those campuses are for the common good in California and perhaps beyond, and then also what kind of transformation you consider necessary when it comes to the UC system and public higher education and how COLA fits into all that. I actually don't know very much about the three-tire system, um, but my understanding of the UC being a public institution means that it has to be accessible to people from different backgrounds with different financial um, situations, which is not the case right now. The, the cost of living in Santa Cruz specifically really makes UCSC um, inaccessible to students who are not independently wealthy. And that's the case for both undergraduate and graduate students. And honestly, it is so heartening to see the really um, diverse classrooms that I sometimes teach in. And I really want to see that preserved. So the conversations around tuition hikes, around, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, increasing enrollment, but not, um, not providing more uh, resources for students really frighten me. Because what I don't want to see is a campus that is only attended by independently wealthy individuals which will result in, you know, a primarily um, white campus, which we already are. Um, so, yeah, I think COLA, and not just COLA for graduate students, but COLA across the board, considering how expensive it is to live in coastal California, um, across different UCs, needs to be um, a primary consideration for the university moving forward. So what we're trying to push against is the, you know, the neoliberal university that runs on this austerity mode um, that is cutting down funding for different resources, that is underpaying their workers, that is increasing classroom sizes without hiring more educators. We are pushing against um, all of that, all of these, um, processes and tendencies yeah I mean I, I think yeah so like the quality how this affects the quality of education like we are both educators and receiving an education you know in this position as uh, graduate student workers so I think for for undergraduates um, as teaching assistants and graduate student instructors um, you know there's this like banner that people hold at protests and things our working conditions are your learning conditions. Like that is a really true thing. Like um, you, you can't be a good, uh, a good TA or, or, or a good educator if, if the, you know, your priorities are like 
what you're going to eat for the week or or, or like, where you're going to sleep oh yeah like you know lots of people me included julie included have to move like every year um have lived in a bunch of different places um because you're always just having to move um so there's there's that but then also like you know it, it has real impacts on your on your on your research as, as as graduate students because you just don't have time to like you you're you're either working or you're like you know plenty of students work second and third jobs to make ends meet M many students live outside of santa cruz in, in mm -hmm. places that are more affordable and commute and so you're spending all of your time commuting um which uh you know really takes its its, its toll on the graduate student body yeah absolutely and um Tony and I both are international students, so we are not legally permitted to work outside of campus or to work beyond 20 hours a week, which is uh, the limitations of our TA uh, employment. And uh, in my department, for example, I don't have summer funding. So on multiple occasions during the summer, I had to leave California to go either work abroad because I cannot work in the States or I had to apply for fellowships and scholarships to find housing abroad, which is really disruptive and is really uh, definitely taking a toll on my research and yeah, my progress in academia. Yeah, I, I, go on. Sorry, I, I don't know if we said um, most graduate students pay over half of their income in, in rent. Um, so we, we get paid a bit more than $2,400 a month before tax, only nine months of the year. Um, and, you know, the, the rents in Santa Cruz are incredibly high. Yeah, uh, we've, been, we've been collecting data, um, and it seems like, on average, most graduate students pay well above 50% of their paycheck on rent. I just recently moved. I had to move during finals last quarter, which is also... Uh, the beginning of the strike week that was incredibly stressful on so many levels uh, and while you know I, I feel safe in my new housing I am paying um, over 70% of my paycheck on rent now that's unbelievable so uh, although uh, living in California myself I can I can certainly relate uh, <laughs> so and and also being uh, poorly paid academic, I can relate in that regard too. So you mentioned that you're both international students. How important have international students been throughout the COLA campaign? And why do you think they've seemingly played such a pivotal role? And do you think an international perspective on what's going on throws lights on, throws some light on aspects of the movement that others, that otherwise might be neglected? Yeah, you know, um, I don't actually know how many international students are striking. There are a number of international students uh, very involved in the in, in the COLA organizing and have been since the start. Um, and yeah, I think this is to do with the fact that we don't get paid very much and can't work another job. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, I mean, also... Uh, the fact that, like, as Yulia was alluding to, like, lots of the laws and uh, and standards are, are really weird, <laughs> if you, and especially weird if if it's uh, if you're not from here, um, 
And uh, yeah, like I, I think if you have a very real sense that things can be otherwise, uh, you, you're led to believe that they should be otherwise. Yeah, I think that's very true. And also, um, I don't know, I think it's important to point out that potentially the risks of striking and the risks of, um, you know, any sort of retaliation from the administration are incredibly high for international students. So academic suspension or termination may result or will result in deportation for a lot of international grads. And so recognizing that that's the risk and people are still involved in this militant organizing and like are moving forward with actions, I think really speaks for itself and sort of testifying to this is unbearable. Like this is absolutely unacceptable conditions and this needs to change. Um, yeah, and what I like about the direction the campaign is taking this year is we've been talking to um, sort of incoming recruits. And Tony can say more about that. But we've been trying to be very honest about the conditions of life in Santa Cruz to the graduate students who are being recruited to come here um, next year. Yeah, um, this is, is becoming one of my favorite uh, like sets of actions that, uh, that we're doing so far. So we, we had our first one, we have uh, prospective graduate students visiting days. Um, and we, 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 we thought that what we ought to do is to make an intervention into these visiting days because, um, you know, they're set up so as to, to paint a certain picture of, of, of life to these incoming graduate students to try and get them to come here um, without them knowing about the, the difficulties they might face. <laughs> um, so we just had our, our first one on, on Thursday, um, which was for um, physical and biological sciences, uh, which is their, their like poster day. So the current graduate students show their posters to incoming graduate students. And someone in uh, molecular cell developmental biology uh, created a poster about the cost of living. Um, and we went and just put this poster in amongst all of the other ones <laughs> and, um, and, and, and just, just went and talked about it to all of these incoming students. And everyone I spoke to was like, actually really thankful that we talked to them about it um, and said, you know, this is going to affect my decision about whether I come here or not. Um, and, uh, and, and ask, ask of these, these people was that if, if they, if they do come here, they, they come and organize with us. If they don't come here, they let the department know and they let the administration know that, that we need, need a caller. Uh, and, uh, so that, that was exciting. And it was actually like a poster competition where the incoming grad students like, uh, give, stickers to the one they like the most and we won by a landslide <laughs> i thought it was like a really fun and funny action to to be doing <laughs> but yeah but the, these, these actions we'll be doing throughout the, the rest of the quarter i wanted to fit this in somewhere and i suppose here is as good a place as any there so our listeners know there's an incredibly illuminating story about the wildcat grading strike at protein magazine and full disclosure this interviewer authored that piece, so a little shameless self-promotion here. But uh, the article highlights, among other things, the interplay between the organizing in physical space and organizing in digital and virtual space, uh, and how both 
seem to be quite important for your COLA campaign. So I wondered if you could, you, you've already mentioned the reply all email messages to the administration, but I wondered if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on how uh, the movement has utilized those different modes of organizing. And also if you think there's something other uh, organizers in academia could learn from that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, th I think whenever we're having these, these conversations, it's always Im most important to, to say that, like, um, everything digitally demands a lot of time and physical space together. I think, uh, I, I think like, leaving for, for, the, for the winter break and, uh, and having everything going online was really hard for a lot, for a lot of us. So lots, lots of in-person organizing went into this, like the, there's such a vital thing to be said for, for meetings and for things like block walking, where you go and walk through, through different, um, to, to different graduate students and, and tell them about the conditions. Um, yeah, that, that, that's it. So yeah, like, um, we, uh, also, the, the only way that we could connect with all these people was through through email, and and getting emails was uh, like the you know it, it's really changed organizing for us. Like, um, and getting people signed up to different uh, different groups on on, on messaging apps um, that has uh, well that that's that's allowed us to organize different committees. Uh, by through different apps it's allowed us to um the stem department uh, that's science god what does it stand for science technology uh, engineering and math Thank yeah you. i think i think that great sure. job james uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, nice assist on my part yeah <laughs> so they um, a, a really big big win for us and maybe kind of a shock because organizers tend to be from the humanities and social sciences and the arts um, was, was getting, was getting STEM on board. And I, I believe how that's, that's really um, accelerated is through them setting up a, a channel on Slack um, and people just, just adding themselves to it, to it and getting involved there. Um, that's been really useful. Um, on, on the first night after we, after we voted to strike, we set up a website. This has been so useful in like creating templates for, to, to send to your faculty and undergraduates, parents of undergraduates, uh, different grad students in your department, etc. Um, you know, we have a whole history of like our email timeline on there. Um, we have a meme collection. <laughs> Memes have been really um, useful in keeping spirits up and uh, Kind of pointing out the absurdity of some of the administration's lines that they've taken and things like this, um, and uh, yeah. So also, like, while this organizing has been spreading to different campuses, um, so much is, is going on online because we, we can't have it in person. So we have like a a, a channel on, on on the Signal app for for an intercampus solidarity group so we're, we're able to strategize in ways with these people and um and and, and plan organizing ahead with these these uh, different campuses now which is really exciting yeah i think having um a really strong online presence allowed us to connect with not just with each other um because you know not only did we have to strike during the break 
so a lot of us were really like physically separated from each other because people went home um but also during the academic year you know the housing crisis really exacerbates the sort of the condition of isolation where you were just sitting in front of your computer most of the day alone and um so it is very useful to have spaces online where we can communicate and come together but um, I got to say that coming back from um, the break, we were all really looking forward to doing some cola IRL <laughs> in real life and just sitting and maybe like authoring an email, but together in one space. Um, that felt really comforting. But um, we also started having um, like strike office hours. We would set up like strike headquarters in the library and folks would just come and sit there during the day, talk to undergrads, talk to graduate students, talk to each other. So setting up um, shared physical spaces has been very important as well. But um, having the online presence really allowed us to connect with people across the country, but also internationally. Like a lot of unions, um, a lot of educators, from all over reached out with support and solidarity. Um, when we had the General Assembly a couple of weeks ago, uh, rank and file UAW members from Kansas, like actual auto workers, sent us pizzas because they're watching our strike. Like they're following our social media and they're really excited to see how the campaign is developing. So they donated some money to feed us at the meeting. So. The online presence has been really important, but yeah, I just want to echo that not only organizing takes a lot of um, like actual work in the physical space, but it also feels really good to do work together and the kind of community that we were able to build so far um, has been really incredible and like feels really good. Final set of questions before we wrap this up. Do you have any sage advice for struggling academic workers elsewhere who desperately want to change their living and labor conditions? And then also, how can people follow your movement, get involved and show solidarity and support your quest for a cola, aside from buying you pizzas and everything? Although maybe that too. I'm, I'm gonna start with the second one. Uh, well, check out our website. That is payusmoreucsc.com and follow us on social media, which is uh, we are payusmoreucsc on Instagram and at payusmoreucsc on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook group that is kind of, that has a very long name. Um, oh, no, I know it. Okay. It's called UC Student Workers Union UAW2865 Santa Cruz. Thank you. <laughs> that. Um, you can follow us on all sorts of uh, platforms. Um, and on the website, we do have a tab that's called How I Can Support COLA. And so there are various ways in which um, folks can support us. And in terms of the other question. Oh, the, the sage advice, yes. The, the sage, sage advice. Ah, uh, stay militant. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, organize. 
yeah talk, talk to you know talk to people who you think are not political because they are talk to your neighbors talk to your co-workers talk to your friends and organize yeah yeah i think i mean i think the the, the things coming out of this strike is like something militant and um and big something that involves large sectors of the of, of the university um you know it, it all it involves undergraduates and it involves faculty too um this is the kind of thing that engages people in organizing um it's uh you know there's obviously lots of value in going and 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 and, and block walking and, and getting membership numbers but really like this is the this is the most energizing thing that we've done for a while um and and really like sparks new networks in ways that we haven't seen for for a while um so yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's our stage <laughs> Ilya and tony thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me for the podcast definitely yeah thank you, thank you and if you don't mind stick around for a minute we can do after this ends we can do a bit of a post-mortem and perhaps uh, address some of the minor recording issues I think I encountered early on. Sure. Great. So we're back. You're listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. You just listened to an interview with two organizers based in uh, Santa Cruz, graduate students working who previously were working at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Since the interview, they have been terminated, as have some 70 plus other grad students. Uh, after the threat by the UC president, Janet Napolitano, and the uh, continuation and escalation of the Wildcat strike uh, this winter quarter. And some 80 students now are uh, without teaching assistantships. And that puts people like our organizers that you just listened to in a very, even more precarious situation than they've been in, which is uh, a tough feat, given the uh, fact that many can't afford to live where they work there in Santa Cruz. So precarity is kind of the name of the game. But now you have folks here on, you know, uh, on their international visas uh, whose livelihoods are essentially threatened. And so, Eli, I'm I'm curious as to uh, what you think of the strategy and, and tactics, and if you think. Uh, and what success might mean for those on strike and what the university might want to uh, accomplish. Yeah, I was having a hard time. You know, one of the, the, the boundaries I'm still trying to figure out is um, uh, whether the tactics so far of more aggressive tactics, and I'm not even call them aggressive, more reasonable tactics of direct uh, wildcat strikes and a variety of kind of open use of public space sorts of movements even against the kind of predatory but legally protected often behavior of universities. Um, whether these kind of uh, recent activities have been emboldening for campus solidarity or whether we really face uh, such kind of broader, uh, I don't know what you call it, authoritarian and just general oversight uh, uh, forces that there needs to be more broad mobilization even beyond higher education for there really to be systematic change. Uh, since you're in California and been so kind of closely attentive to these movements, I'm curious to hear what you think about 
their success, especially for solidarity building for the future? Well, I was pleasantly surprised to see how quickly the call for ECOA spread across the UC campuses. If you go online on social media, Twitter or Instagram, you can now pretty easily uh, bring up the different accounts based on the uh, several different UC campuses where they're all calling for, they're all part of this uh, cost of living adjustment movement now, whether it is San Diego or Santa Barbara or Davis or Berkeley. And I think there's even an account for folks at, at UC Riverside just where I've, I've been teaching recently. And that's interesting to me because Riverside is um, a much more subdued campus, generally speaking, not necessarily known for its uh, militancy or collective action with some important uh, exceptions to be sure. And when that's also not to neglect a lot of the uh, organizing and solidarity work that kind of goes on below the, uh, below the surface. But in terms of the creeping authoritarianism that you referenced, a lot of folks were rightfully appalled by the fact that the University of California called in riot police to arrest students in mid-February. And that was one of, I think that was an, an important moment. I was, I've been following uh, some communications among uh, Senate faculty in the UC system. And some of them were skeptical of, or, or somewhat critical of the tactic of withholding grades. And also thought that the $1,400 a month that they were asking for uh, the, the, the COLA that it was excessive, which to me is, is kind of ironic given the salaries that many of these tenured line and tenured faculty, the, the Senate faculty across the UC system, kind of salaries that they're making. I, I, I don't think they necessarily understand some of the, the difficulties of trying to uh, live where you work in California. And and so the the police clashing with the strikers and, and protesters that I think alerted some Senate faculty who were maybe otherwise on the fence to the fact that the university is responding uh, in, in a way that maybe we shouldn't tolerate. And, and I, I think that's right. And I think that the more that Senate faculty and, and lecturers too, for that matter, uh, that, and, and undergrads too, of course, the more that uh, we all kind of respond collectively and push back against those authoritarian measures, the more uh, protection and uh, that uh, those who are putting themselves out there will have and the greater likelihood that, uh, that they're going to be successful in what they're striking for. I wonder if there's a little lesson there, I'm not sure on the big scale, but at least on the small scale from you know, the civil rights movement that uh, forcing a uh, course of authoritarianism to show its display of force often can be a kind of awakening siren call to people about what's actually going on um, in terms right. of how control works and what the length people are going, the willingness to stop, you know, reasonable protections of people's autonomy and ability to survive financially. Uh -huh. there's, a, there's a great anecdote about MLK that I remember reading a while back, how if, you know, he learned that there was not going to be much publicity or media presence at a particular uh, demonstration where there'd be 
civil disobedience and a likelihood of you know police repression and, and them you know bringing the dogs out and, and all the rest well if there wasn't if that wasn't going to be covered meaning it wasn't going to be uh something that the pub public would be exposed to then he'd sometimes cancel the event right? because that publicity was that important in order to try to um generate uh, sympathy and, and and i guess empathy for uh the the, the the actions that they they were taking and i'm wondering if if the uaw the union that represents the uh teaching assistants across the uc system if uaw local 2865 if they're going to be able to reopen negotiations with the university because since all, all this has taken place they have offered to they they have not openly supported the strike and there's a reason for that because if, if they did then they could get in i suppose quite a bit of legal trouble uh and be threatened with loss of quite a lot of money for violating the terms of the contract uh, but at the same time they've also kind of at least up to this point haven't necessarily prioritized the concerns of their members who are in the most vulnerable situations like those in, in Santa Cruz. And so the, the role of unions here, I think is, is really interesting. And same thing with a, a similar situation with the lecturers union, which I've been a member of uh, UCAFT, the university council, American Federation of teachers, which represents the non-Senate faculty across the UC system. Some, of the uh, UCAFT locals, like Davis, for example, they were vocally supportive of the Wildcat strike from the get-go, which I which I really appreciated. And and since then, there's been, uh, I think, more reservations expressed, precisely because what I mentioned before, if the UCAFT folks are, you know, explicitly endorsing the strike, that could be collected potentially as evidence against the UAW, although I don't see that playing out. Uh, I, I'm not as concerned about that as other folks are. And, and also, even if that were to be an issue, or I, I don't know that that then justifies neglecting or ignoring or not, you know, uh, going to bat for the folks who've really put themselves out there and are risking as much as the strikers in Santa Cruz are risking. But the role of unions, I think, is really interesting here. It kind of brings up another point that I've been thinking about, and one of the ones that seems to be a tension here is the kind of varied self-interest across higher education, and especially with very vulnerable groups, graduate assistants and adjuncts, always kind of being at the short end of the stick and with other groups protected, uh, concerned about protecting their own autonomy and rights whether that's unionized or through tenure. Um, so I was wondering about where you see possibilities and where there's been excess of working across those very strong kinds of self-interest in higher education. Well, I think the level of undergrad support for the COLA movement at UCSC and across now various UC campuses, I think that's been incredibly inspiring and isn't necessarily what you would expect because it's primarily because uh, it's grad students who are trying to address their you know cost of living woes through 
the through higher wages and so that doesn't directly pertain to undergrads but of course undergrads are affected by the egregious cost of living in california as well as are for that matter lecturers although to ver to you know differing degrees right there are lecturers who some who have continuing appointments who are you know appreciably better off others who like me for example kind of struggling to pick up classes and you know pay rent from one quarter to the next and and so i i had i was uh, overheard some lecturers say that you know the the cola movement very powerful for grads and undergrads but maybe not necessarily as powerful if um, applied or if, if borrowed by lecturers as part of our um, as, as part of our struggle and I don't know if that's true or not I'm not sure I don't know if I necessarily agree although I think it does raise an interesting point about some of those uh, the differences related to, to self-interest and class or institutional position and what have you and then that raises the question it's like well how do we then proceed to overcome some of those differences so that we can still ensure that you know uh, the struggle that grad students and undergrads are engaging in is, is something that we can also support as opposed to you know actively fighting against it which I, I think should be you know, avoided at, at all costs. And I think that's one of the concerns. It's a concern you know, when it comes to any of these sorts of uh, institutional status differences. For example, lecturers like, like myself, we're currently bargaining uh, a new contract with the university or trying to, our contract expired at the end of January. And the university just recently uh, sent out a, an email message that caused some senate faculty to it raised some senate faculty eyebrows suggested that you know maybe what lecturers are ultimately trying to do is you know eradicate tenure or displace it or something like that which isn't really true and is pretty irrelevant even if you know i did want to abolish the two-tier system that's not exactly what we're trying to accomplish or could accomplish with our contract negotiations but it just goes to show you there's another example of the, some of that uh infighting which it, if not being if it's not inevitable it it's certainly there are certainly mechanisms in place and structures in place that tend to make that uh, uh, an issue that often prevents the kind of solidarity that might address some of these deeper structural problems, like not being able to uh, afford to live where you teach or not being uh, able to, you know, or not knowing if you're going to have a job, you know, a couple months down the line. Uh, maybe that's a, a place to leave with a final question, which is what lessons do you think there's uh, to be learned from the strike so far, especially for that solidarity building uh, across different constituencies? One of the things that I wrote about in the Protein Magazine piece that I authored about the strike, a news story, this was before the, it was escalated uh, and uh, classes reconvened for the the winter quarter so it was before the, the full full-blown wildcat strike and it was just the withholding of grades which by the way i think is a, a very interesting tactic that other other educators might explore because it doesn't 
totally shut down the college or, or university, still allows education to take place potentially, but puts the university uh, in, you know, between a rock and a hard place. But at any rate, uh, the, the, uh, the, the aspect of the strike that I kind of focused on in that Protein Magazine piece, a little more shameless self-promotion here, I understand, but that interplay between organizing online in digital spaces and organizing in physical space and also the role that uh, social media and memes that they had talked about the organizers in, in the interview and in the, the piece that I wrote and I'm sure anywhere else that you learn about the strike online uh, there's it's the um, the role of memes and other kind of digital communications on social media have been paramount in helping to spread the strike and to garner more of that solidarity and to increase people's awareness of it, which then has led to you know, greater pressure, I think, on the administration. And so understanding, getting a better understanding of that dynamic, because there's also the risk of, and, and this is this is common in you know media studies too, it's a common critique of fetishizing new media and and for example, with say the Arab Spring in 2011, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, some media scholars or people interested in the role of media celebrated just how, how powerful the role of the you know, mass self-communication, the, the, you know, the, the Twitter communications were in kind of uh, facilitating or spurring the uprisings. But some of those celebratory accounts didn't adequately address or you know throw enough light on a lot of the stuff that was going on on the ground that you know uh, that had you know, material significance beyond what you get in say a 120 character tweet or in a clever meme or something like that and so striking that right balance and using the capacity of digital communications to spread awareness and to generate interest and to you know, try to increase solidarity, I think is certainly worthwhile and perhaps still, if not underutilized, not yet fully understood how to uh, realize it to its full capacity. And so that's something that, that I think is maybe, will maybe be explored further down the road. Well, uh, I think that's it for us today. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in next time, and we'll have some other speakers exploring uh, the diverse challenges facing higher education today. Thank you. Thanks, folks. Welcome to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. You're here with your host, James Anderson, and my co-host. Eli Kramer. And today, you're going to be treated to an interview, second one, that I've done with two organizers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, Yulia and Tony, who have been very much involved in the COLA or cost of living adjustment organizing that's taken place at Santa Cruz, dating back a while now, but continues. Uh, they helped organize the Wildcat grading strike a while back. Uh, we had last interviewed them in January and so this interview allows us an opportunity to provide you some updates on uh, what's going down there in Santa Cruz and also we touch on the way that the COLA movement has spread across the UC system and has helped to galvanize 
different organizing efforts uh, kind of across the country. And so let's go ahead and jump in. And I hope you enjoy the interview with Yulia and Tony from UCSC. All right. And you're listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. I'm here with two organizers from the University of California, Santa Cruz, Yulia and Tony. Uh, Yulia and, and Tony and I last spoke way back in January, I think right when the winter quarter was getting underway at UCSC. Uh, they both had been involved in the burgeoning COLA or cost of living adjustment movement and in the wildcat grading strike there at UC Santa Cruz and they had withheld fall quarter grades. A lot, a lot has happened since then. <laughs> Uh, to say the least, hence this follow-up interview that'll be featured as part two of the podcast. And we'll get back to the strike and the COLA stuff in a moment. But first, as I said before we started recording, my Bush League mistake last time inadvertently cut off your intros. So to start off on the right foot this time, would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourselves? And then also, hope this doesn't sound too trite, but it seems to be the question to ask these days, how have you been holding up during this pandemic? Tony, do you want to start? <laughs> sure. I'm Tony. I'm a, a, a PhD candidate in literature at UCSC, and uh, in my in my fourth year, um, how I've been holding up, I am I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> my my parents were and my grandparents were meant to have just visited. They were meant to be going home today. Um, which obviously they didn't do from England. I'm an international student, um, which is a little sad, but uh, I have a mostly just been staying indoors and have like uh, four other people staying with us in this house, uh, which, which makes things a little easier. Um, (laughs) And my name is Yulia. I am a PhD candidate in film and digital media at UCSC. Tony and I are co-presidents of the Graduate Student Association, and uh, I am hunkered down in Santa Cruz in my apartment. I'm doing okay. It's, you know, it's starting to dawn on me that I've been uh, self-isolating for over a month alone Mm -hmm. in my house, Uh, so it's starting to get to me, but it's, it's been okay. Like, I'm healthy and safe and yeah well that's good the the health and the safety and it's good to know you are both persevering so uh this might be a mouthful for you since it's been three months since our last interview but would you walk us through some of the major developments in the wildcat and in the cola campaign since january whatever um important updates you think are most relevant it honestly feels like the whole thing has happened you know since then, <laughs> like, like so much, like most of it has happened since then. I can't believe we spoke so long ago. Um, but yeah, a lot has happened. The grading strike has escalated into a teaching strike that uh, saw uh, a picket line. And so we went on a teaching strike on February 10th and we held a picket line for a month. And then um, the COVID outbreak started and the school moved online. And so our organizing also had to move online. And we withheld 
winter quarter grades at the end of the quarter. And what else has happened, Tony? Well, so as a result of withholding winter quarter grades, uh, 82 of us at least were fired um, from our spring quarter positions, which was starting in um, earlier in, in April. Um, and we have been fighting this um, both with uh, with wildcats, which spread to other campuses. Um, so there were wildcat grading strikes at um, UC Santa Barbara, UC Davis, UC San Diego. Berkeley is on a semester system, so their, their, their timeline for grades is a little different from the other UCs. Um, but they went on a wildcat teaching strike as well, um, and their semester is continuing. Um, so they're kind of working out what to do with that. Um, at the same time, um, there has been the possibility through our union um, UAW2865 of having a, a union sanctioned strike, which the Wildcat wasn't, um, uh, because of unfair labor practices that they've, uh, they've charged against the university to do with their treatment of the Wildcat strikes um, and their attempts to deal uh, with, with different bodies for cost of living adjustment in ways that weren't seen as, as sort of fair labor, labor practices. So that is something that we're building towards at the moment, like a massive union-sanctioned, legally protected strike, um, which would involve thousands of workers across the state of California. Um, uh, I, I think that kind of <laughs> sums up briefly what's been going on. It's, it's been a, a, a wild... Uh, turn of events uh, the fact that you know we, we got fired and then sort of two weeks later everything went online is uh um a really kind of strange and unexpected turn of events um so uh that that's sort of source of where we're at right now mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. thanks for bringing us up to speed and so we'll come back to the uh ulp strike uh that the union is is trying to um, launch in a minute but you mentioned that some 80 organizers or 82 organizers were terminated. Is that right? That is approximately right. It's sort of unclear because there are two ways of firing uh, folks. Those who already had a spring appointment were officially terminated with, um, we went through a union process. We grieved the, let, the notice of intent to dismiss us from our employment Um, And it was sort of a long, laborious process to try to fight our firings, but at least it was an official process. We have documentation and the union is fighting on our behalf. Uh, So approximately 55 people uh, were officially fired. And then some 30 people got a one-line email that said, uh, you are not going to be considered for a spring employment. And the university refused to give us an exact number of individuals who got those emails. Mm. So we, we think we know everyone and it is, um, so it's, it's about 85 people from what I understand altogether. Uh, but yeah, the university has been really shady about the numbers and the ways in which they terminated us. And so both of you yeah. two were, were officially terminated or did you receive the one-line email? I got nope. officially fired okay. with the, yeah. Me, me too, yeah. yeah. Okay, sol- solidarity. Uh, and so <laughs> could, you, could you comment on the decision to you know, maintain those terminations during a pandemic? 
like the university's decision to withhold those assistantships mm -hmm. in a period of serious crisis where you know people's income can make the difference between you know being able to pay rent or not and not being able be able, being able to pay rent pay rent meaning exposing you to you know a, a potentially fatal virus what has there been any um, attempts to really push back on the university for, for that very reason and have they responded yeah so um <laughs> you obviously know what we think about that james we, we think it's it's abhorrent <laughs> um but um yeah i mean obviously it's uh it, it, it's awful and it's um it's uh it's a it's a wild thing to do i mean i think kind of one pressure point that we had on the university that we managed to get gain some kind of uh traction with on social media and uh, and kind of like uh you know uh, in, in the press was that we would have a medical insurance uh, taken away in you know in, in the midst of a pandemic um which we managed to fight through the union to get this this back again for for certain students not all of them but um for for, for certain students and so uh, that is kind of one feature of this, but then, then the other feature, yeah, is that, that kind of there's this, this massive level of uncertainty, kind of um, the way that the that we ended up dealing with it was we had, we had amassed the strike funds that we were able to to pay certain people through. Um, people were fired from teaching jobs, uh, unionized teaching jobs, but they weren't fired from from uh, graduate student research jobs yeah. um, or, or like fellowships or things like this. So people were able to keep uh, these jobs, but they, kind of for the future we don't know whether we've been permanently fired or not um and part of the process of uh, of, of grieving this and going through the union processes to to fight um you know the possibility of being permanently fired another feature of, to add to what yulia said is that we have um so so people like me and yulia were getting fired for withholding uh fall grades in the first place and then but then we have this other wave of people who withheld winter grades mm -hmm. um who would then be getting fired from from summer appointments uh, uh, as well. And so like we have this, this second wave of people who, who, who are sort of thrown into uncertainty. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously kind of awful that the university continues with this and won't, um, won't, won't negotiate, negotiate over this. Besides um, this, uh, the, the, the process of, of losing our jobs, there's also this, uh, a level of discipline that's doing through the student conduct process, which is, which is a little separate. Um, and this is continuing, which is to, which is both to do with, um, uh, you know, nature, the nature of us like taking grades off, uh, off, off canvas, which is the system which you use to put, uh, to, to, to display grades to students. Um, but also for things to do with our picket, which includes like blocking the roads, you know, the different days we, 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 we block the intersection at the, at the base of campus. Um, there were things to do with uh, there, there were times that we uh, we opened up dining halls and uh, so people didn't have to pay for the dining halls at different days. So all of these different kinds of um, uh, 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 you know actions are being are being are being disciplined and this continues through uh, through the pandemic. That that doesn't stop at all, even though there's been all of these these massive changes. Um, and it's a lot easier for the university to be able to do this under this kind of shock doctrine. Um, you know tactics like that uh everything is, is so up in the air that the that um these the, a lot of these practices can kind of can kind of slip under the rug 
Yeah, and we tried, we tried to negotiate with the university and offer a so-called grade trade where we said um, we would submit grades that we're withholding if everyone who got fired is reinstated and all of the student conduct discipline is retracted. Mm-hmm. And the university refused. They said no, which is so unreasonable um, because we have been offering grade trades that included some uh, monetary compensation and you know some sort of approximation to a COLA. And they refused all of those. Um, then the penultimate time we offered the grade trade, we asked the university to, um, in, in, in a written form, to demand that UCOP, the office of the president of the UC, bargains with us over COLA. So we didn't even ask the university for any uh, material compensation. We asked them to be on our side in this fight, and they refused that. And so the very last grade trade that we offered simply included reinstatement and retraction of all discipline. And they refused that as well. Um, Yeah. Okay, and so you mentioned that UAW 2865, the union representing grad student workers across the UC system is now organizing for a sanctioned unfair labor practice strike sometime this uh, spring quarter. That's, is that right? Well, I mean, it can happen any day, really. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, and so, so just to, so the, the listeners are clear, your previous grading strike was a wildcat because it was not sanctioned by the union. And if I understand or understood the situation correctly, there was some disconnect between the UAW statewide union and members in Santa Cruz regarding your last contract. And so I wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about the ULP strike strategy and also explain, if you can, what kind of reconciliation or rapprochement or solidarity work took place between organizers like yourselves and others at UCSC and UAW 2865 leadership to make this possible? Because, you know, previously you had to um, go kind of against their will and engage in a wildcat, and now you're trying to build up to this uh, sanctioned ULP strike. So what can you kind of account for that? Yeah, I mean, I think on our campus, uh, we do not have any, uh, like, divide between, you know, what you might think of as like caller organizers and like union organizers, like everybody uh, fighting, like under the banner of the union was fighting for a caller from the start. Um, I think on other campuses that have had caller campaigns, there's been more of this kind of divide between, um, you know, people who are seen as wildcats and people who are skeptical of the wildcat, people in leadership positions and things like this. Um, but I, I think kind of, yeah, like, uh, sort of what happened is that, is, uh, as I see it, is that the, the union uh, leadership felt that they could not be on boards or like outwardly on board with uh with the call movement from the start because of kind of legal consequences because we have a no strike clause in our contracts um all of this um so they couldn't sort of out, outwardly support this um but they have they, they have pushed for for a ulp strike in to to uh to, to deal with the consequences of um of the firings and everything like this um so I, I think some of the solidarity work has been just from organizing together. Um, the, the, I think that there are still kinds of 
there's a, there's a, a maybe fairly healthy tension in in the the, the uh, people who are you know have been fired and have been fighting for this for a long time are pushing for this to speed up um, in ways that that uh, you know we, we we see we need this to to happen urgently. So so the way that it's working at the moment is that. Uh, leadership has asked for kind of like strike pledges uh, before they do a strike authorization vote. So they want 5,000 strike pledges across the state uh, before they call a strike authorization vote, which would, uh, they would want two thirds of, of membership to vote for to, to, uh, to be able to go and do it, um, which would mean that it would be like a huge, huge strike. But I think what we're feeling is that we want this, uh, we, we really want this vote to be called more quickly because I, I, I don't know if we're seeing the kind of urgency on the ground, like because people don't know when the vote is going to come. Um, so we, we really just want this, uh, we, 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 we want to push, uh, to have this, this happen as soon as we, as we can, um, to get people reinstated and to get people to call it because we still need, we're still vastly underpaid in the pandemic, you know, and the, and kind of like crisis conditions exacerbate the needs for, um, for, for, for fair pay, you know, people are still, going out and working second and third jobs, which puts them at risk because they, they can't, you know, they can't make rent and can't make other expenses because through their, their shitty pay. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I think this is something that people at Santa Cruz have recognized all along and we're just uh, trying to, trying to, um, trying to make it happen as soon as we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, what happened since the outbreak of um, COVID-19 is that our push to grow the wildcat sort of pivoted towards organizing for a ULP. So our wildcat tactic changed. And I think, you know, we really aligned with statewide union in what we see the strongest um, way to move forward and win a COLA now. And so both the union and the Wildcats are organizing for a ULP strike. And I think the really the changing conditions and just the recognition of this having a ULP on the table is a concrete win of the Wildcat. We made it happen. And so um, I don't know, just seeing that as a victory and seeing a, UL, a massive ULP strike as an escalation for a COLA movement, I think is something that helped us uh, realign and work together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as Tony said, on our specific campus, there isn't so much of a tension, but um, I think on other campuses, it might be slightly different, but it's, we are working to resolve it because it seems that the ULP strike is the way to get a COLA. And so as you two might remember, probably do, because I interviewed you both for it, I wrote a piece for Protean Magazine that I mentioned in the last interview that we did. Uh, that article was titled UC Santa Cruz on Strike, Mobilizing in Digital and Physical Spaces, and was published on New Year's Eve of 2019. And so in addition to more shameless self promotion <laughs> I'm also thinking now that like this podcast interview, perhaps the piece could really use a part two because of the angle that I was emphasizing, uh, and that seems worth returning to, because I was interested at the time 
among other things, with how your organizing and mobilizing was taking place both on the ground around campus, but also virtually through digital and network communications and the like. And I assume the virtual and digital organizing has probably increased precipitously since the start of the pandemic, given the shelter in place directive and physical distancing safety guidelines. And so could you talk a little bit about what some of that has looked like, like the, the new ways that you are um, organizing and mobilizing uh, in ways that maybe you, um, uh, that you have, that you're forced to do now because the in-person on the ground stuff isn't possible? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so uh, kind of the, the uh, you know, the, it, like, as you're saying, we, we had a first round of doing this digital organizing back over, over Christmas. Um, so we're, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're not new to this, so we, we sort of know how to do it. Um, not your first rodeo. Not your first rodeo, as they say. Not, not our first rodeo, no. <laughs> um, um, there is kind of the difficulty of, of it. It, uh, it just sort of zaps your energy a little bit, like being on Zoom calls so long is, is a little tiring, but I think that there, there, there are ways to, um, you know, uh, keep, keep energized by this. I mean, we have a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of Zoom meetings. Um, through the union, we're doing phone banking pretty much every day for, for weeks and weeks. Um, we have lists of, of, of uh, union members and sort of in-unit workers across the state um, that, uh, that we're calling. And I can kind of first just checking in about how their working conditions are through coronavirus, like whether you know, they're being asked to like buy more equipment if they're going to compensate for it, whether they're going over their hours to try and like, um, you know, hold sections or anything like that. Um, that's one way. I mean, I, I, for, for me, it's felt like it's really facilitated more sort of inter-campus stuff. Like, I mean, when we were, you know, so the way it worked for, for, for us is that we went directly from this uh, physically very draining uh, physical picket um, at the base of campus that we were holding you know, every day, as Julia said, for a month to all of that being gone. So, so, you know, what it looked like was like, we had to work out where the food was going to come from every day. We were holding out from like, you know, eight o'clock to five o'clock, like every day we were like holding workshops, doing teach-ins, all of this stuff. Um, you know, sometimes we were like out in the middle of the road, a bunch of people got arrested. Um, like doing sort of like legal support um you know checking in with each other like playing music all, all of this kind of stuff um and then stopping that so and i mean like i i what i'm trying to say is that like uh there wasn't much as much space i think that there to like uh coordinate across campuses um for what our strategy would like and we have that a lot more now um i mean maybe yulia can talk about this a bit more but like things that have developed at the same time has been um, this uh, this idea of the strike university, which came out of Santa Barbara, uh, which has been like sort of like online lectures and, and um, discussions and things like that, that are held um, in relation to COLA, tangential to COLA, um, all of this stuff. And then different kind of, kind of like, like tactics um, that are, that are being used on, on different campuses, like mutual aid campaigns, things like this. Um, you know, sort of like direct actions around May Day. Um, I, I think, you know, there's been become more space for this kind of coordination um, by us sort of all being um, 
compared to our homes. Yeah, I think that's true. Because on our campus, we already had a pretty robust digital infrastructure. We have all these pretty well-functioning um, groups and committees and, you know, um, that, you know, continue working now that we're doing all the organizing digitally. And I think what we've been trying to do is to approximate the kind of socializing that we we would do in normal life, but on Zoom. So we would still have happy hours together and like, you know, not just have meetings, but actually try to spend time together, even though on Zoom. Um, but I think Tony's right that what what this shift to digital brought out to the fore is the inter-campus organizing. Mm -hmm. We've been having um, statewide general assembly meetings with hundreds of people from every campus attending those meetings and participating in conversations about whole strategy and tactics and organizing all together. And yeah, Strike University um, is this new digital platform that was developed by statewide organizers. And basically uh, each campus is responsible for one to program one of the days of the week. And uh, we, would, we would hold teach-ins, lectures, workshops. Uh, last Friday, just a couple of days ago, one of the Wildcats from UCSC held a workshop that was called Saw and Tell. And uh, it was just like a really chill hangout um, where people were sewing primarily masks for um, uh, for agriculture agricultural workers around Santa Cruz in Watsonville. Uh, but you know, some other people, organizers from um, from other states, from other universities joined the Zoom call and just hang out with us and talked about organizing and COLA and how they could get COLA. And while everyone was sewing and, you know, doing embroidery and whatever they were doing, but like arts and crafts, but also talking about organizing. And that was just so wonderful. And I'm pleased to report, you probably heard about this, but a while back, there was a huge COLA demonstration at UC Riverside, uh, where I teach when I can get classes. And this was in early March. It was right before a UCFT uh, bargaining rally, uh, UCFT being the union that represents lecturers and librarians across the UC system, the union that I'm a part of. Uh, and I wrote a piece for the NAB blog about that rally. And I don't know if you'd heard this, but uh, because the rally uh, for, for the bargaining event took place, I believe it was just the day after the massive COLA demonstration with maybe two or, or 300 people. Uh, and the administration, their table team, were reportedly scared to come to the bargaining table because of the demonstration. <laughs> and so at least that was their excuse for uh, showing up late and not being there for the morning session that they were wow. for. Uh, yeah, I actually wrote a piece about that too. And as I think I mentioned to Yulia a while back, I fell sick soon after that. May or may not have been uh, COVID-19, don't really know, because I wasn't able to get you know tested at the time. Uh, and so I wrote about that for the NAB blog as well. But uh, even back in, in January when we spoke, uh, I remember you mentioning that the COLA movement had spread to some other UC campuses 
but now it's really become a force across the UC system. And so I, I wonder what you consider uh, the most interesting or inspiring work that's being done on other campuses. You've touched on it already, but I wonder if there's something else that our listeners would be interested in. Do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think Strike University, I, I see as, as sort of mainly, um, well, like as being directed by Santa Barbara. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little difficult to kind of register because, you know, yeah, as we were saying, like we had this moment I think to add to kind of like our physical picket, um, there were all of these different demonstrations. Um, Santa Barbara was holding their own picket, but there were all of these different demonstrations across the state. Um, I mean, we had this statewide day of action on a Wednesday, I forget the date, but where every campus across the state was holding was holding rallies for us when we were holding a phys physical picket. There were just these huge turnouts of people. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, so to take a step back before... I um, think that's exactly the day that James was talking about. I think that, oh. that is the statewide day of action. In, oh. in early March? In early March, yeah. Okay. Okay, right, right, right. That, that's what, okay, that, that's good. Yeah, so I mean, I think, um, you know, especially there were these videos coming out of just like thousands and thousands of people at each campus. Um, which, it, yeah, it's, it's incredibly energizing. It's a moment that we at least haven't seen on UC campuses since, you know, 2009, 2010, um, uh, but possibly further back than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think even then, there wasn't so much, from what I understand, like actual coordinating between campuses. Um, so I think, you know, seeing that what we thought was going to be a statewide wildcat strike became a statewide movement that is still um, shaping up fr from what I, I see into a ULP strike. But, you know, it's, it's shaping up into something really beautiful that is... Um, that includes a lot of mutual aid campaigns on every campus. Uh, you see Irvine came out with what they called a social welfare strike, where all of their time that they are supposed to devote to teaching, they devote to mutual aid and social reproduction and taking care of their students in ways that their students are asking for. And um, Berkeley, uh, they didn't get to have a physical picket because of social distancing. So they, they had to have all of the teach-ins and um, all of the organizing and sort of picketing digitally and online. And they also included social welfare and mutual aid into their campaign. And sort of seeing how, you know, our organizing and the, the organization that we built and the infrastructure that we created for COLA now has the capacity to incorporate other needs and other things that I think that's really beautiful and, and really great. I think as well, beyond the UC system, um, like I've seen a number of people writing about this and saying kind of like, um, 
you know, the rank and file militancy beginning at, at UCSC um, was kind of inspired grad workers and kind of other workers like acro- across the country. I mean, like mm-hmm. on Friday, um, grad workers uh, went on strike at Columbia. Um, there's uh, there, there's, a, there's a movement, uh, Peo's, OC, oh, sorry, Peo's OSU at Oregon State, Oregon State University who are organizing around similar demands. Um, you know, we're in touch with workers at, at Princeton who are kind of... Um, have have demands around like uh graduate student uh timelines being pushed back um and things like this so you know that that is something that's that's really you know inspiring and these workers also aren't just in touch with with ucsc workers that they're in touch with uh uc grads across the state because it's a statewide movement Mm -hmm. and in addition to that we've also seen a, a wave of uh, undergrad student organizing too. There was an April 24 piece at the nation aptly titled students across the country are going on strike that documented various actions at the University of Chicago and Pomona College and the new school and Vassar College and uh, discussed how students are withholding tuition, refusing to, mm-hmm. to pay rent and refusing to engage in classes in some cases um, in response to the way that administrations have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic like with the instantaneous transition to online education without any reduction in tuition, despite the various services that are now not available and many uh, schools kicking students out of residence halls, among other pretty egregious top-down decisions. And so I wonder uh, where you see this recent wave or yeah, where do you see this recent wave of undergrad and grad student strikes and collective actions going? Um, and, and, you know, in addition to this, there's also the movement for a moratorium on rent and mortgages now that's become super popular across the state, part of which might be attributed to, you know, your COLA campaign. Um, and so uh, taking all that into account, like, do you see this coalescing into something bigger, something that, you know, um, that maybe extends beyond California? Yeah, I mean, so okay. I, I think to the to the second point of what you're talking about about the the, the kind of campaigns for moratorium on, on rent, um, this should of course be like inextricably linked with a cola campaign, um, because you know the the cost of living adjustment uh, demand has always been tied to to rent burden, the cost of housing in Santa Cruz, and I I, I think especially like, you know, uh, the the it's, especially for undergrads, not so much grads, grads in Santa Cruz at least, um, but, you know, so many who live on on-campus housing and are paying um, so much money for what we're finding is totally substandard living conditions. I mean, before we were doing COLA organizing, we were doing organizing uh, around, like, undergrads thinking of themselves as, uh, or people living on on-campus housing, thinking of themselves as tenants to the UC, who is actually a really exploitative landlord who is, is charging people massive amounts of money with an obligatory meal plan um, for conditions that often have, you know, they often have rats, they often have mold. Um, there's often like three or four to a room and they're paying like thousands and thousands of dollars every month for this. And I think that, you know, obviously like, uh, now kind of people's uh, people aren't able to live on campus uh, they shouldn't have to pay rent i mean one, one thing that just happened is that the family student housing uh, where a number of grads do live 
um, which are these 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 two uh, two bedroom houses on campus. Um, there's there's been pressure to raise the rents in the middle of uh, of a pandemic, which is which is shocking. They're already paying. I, I think maybe Yulia can correct me on this. I think they're paying seventeen fifty a month for these uh, for these for these places um, where there's often only a sort of sort of a single family living there. I, I found out the other day that at the same uh, uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, uh, they charged their students six hundred dollars for these two two bedroom apartments on campus. Um, so, uh, you know, t- to raise the rent at this time is absolutely mad. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and maybe, sorry, I, I, I kind of went off on that one, but I, Yuli, maybe you want to speak to the, to the sort of other parts of that question. Yeah, no, but um, with the, you know, I think the move to try to raise rent in family student housing really solidified the movement around a rent strike. Mm-hmm. And it coalesced in family student housing, and there is a push for a rent strike there more so than anywhere else. And so, um, yeah, COLA, you know, the COLA organizing, COLA campaign came out of uh, housing organizing, specifically on-campus housing organizing. So it's not surprising to me that it now incorporates uh, a rent strike organizing and more sort of militant and explicit housing organizing in town and on campus. Um, so it's it's definitely inextricably linked. And I think um, with undergrad movements, I really um, I really think that uh, all students, not not just grad students across the country, but uh, that's been happening as well, actually. I've been on so many like national calls um, and organizing campaigns across the country for graduate students with their demands for their university sort of coalescing around cost of living, around extending the, you know, it's called, this campaign is called Pause the Clock, extending funding for all graduate students because of COVID. But I think undergrads is really inextricable to this and if we want to see uh, our universities survive as institutions of higher education as institutions of knowledge production we absolutely need to combine our efforts with undergrads and fight for reduced tuition for um, reduction or you know a complete refund of fees for safe living conditions and um otherwise you know as tony said the shock doctrine like we we're gonna see it only get worse and i think um you know there's so much going on right now that i'm really excited for may day to see Mm -hmm. like all of the things that are gonna coalesce and all of the different strikes and action that are gonna happen then Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. I think we're going to see a lot of undergrads and grads across the country take action uh, and demand better from their institutions. Yeah, and I, I think to, to kind of add to the, the, the demand for like a, a tuition refund or something like this from undergrads, um, you know, at UCSC, this, this takes a kind of kind of particular flavor um, because not only are the undergrads getting this shitty online education you know we know all the reasons why it's 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 like massively inadequate but also like 
you know, a tenth of their working TAs got fired. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of these undergrads weren't able to, you know, to they had to sort of cut like uh, enrollments in, in, in um, particularly affected departments. Um, so undergrads couldn't take classes that are required for their majors, things like this, couldn't take classes that they wanted to. So, you know, there's all these reasons why they shouldn't pay what they were paying before. But I think like the demand for a tuition refund has to be kind of sculpted to be a left-wing demand. You know, there's this way where you can say like, you know, I didn't get the product that I wanted. Like, you know, I'm, I'm paying for this. I want my money back. But, but that kind of reifies the, the like, you know, the idea that you still should be paying for this. Whereas like to it has to be made into a, a left-wing demand that says like, you know, this is the first step. We want to pay less for this and we want to keep paying less for the, uh, and we, we don't want to pay anything for this. We, this yeah. is like, a, <laughs> like this, this should be free. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think strike university actually came out as like, as a real alternative mm-hmm. as like what we imagine a public university to be, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a leftist radical free open for all, um, sort of curriculum that doesn't charge anyone that is open that um that is shaped by students that is shaped by whoever wants to contribute to it so yeah we you know the cola campaign was really imagining what a public university should be and i think strike university is trying to enact it and though over zoom but uh, yeah, I think it's been a really exciting project and sort of we're still trying to uh, like enact and embody the different cola ideas that we had about reimagining higher education. And Yulia had mentioned what's likely to go down on May Day, International Workers Day, May 1st, which is when this podcast should become available. And as I'm sure you both know, workers across the country, outside of higher education, in the gig economy, Some have been on strike and others at say Whole Foods and Amazon and Target and Instacart are planning to go on strike on May Day. Uh, And speaking of the gig economy, uh, professors in the gig economy, that's actually the title of a a contingent faculty book about organizing, but I'll I'll borrow the phrase, uh, are also thinking about what actions we can take. I'm not sure if you had a chance to read the piece that some other uh, Santa Cruzans, Santa Cruzians, I'm not sure how you, <laughs> how you phrase that, but uh, lecturers, yeah, lecturers at UC Santa Cruz, uh, Josh Brzezinski <laughs> and Roxy Power uh, wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education that came out just recently titled, Now, Yes, Now is the Time for Contingent Faculty to Organize. And what they wrote, uh, I'm just going to read an excerpt, the coldest strike prompted many around campus and around the country to consider the depth of academic precarity today. However, the situation facing contingent faculty like us, we are lecturers at UCSC and activists in UCAFT, the Union for Teaching Faculty and Librarians at the University of California, was largely absent from the media coverage. True, graduate students did ask us to join them. When could we strike? Why not just wildcat with them? But our response surprised many of them. We often feel too damn precarious and too exhausted to even fight anymore. And soon we thought, but mostly did not say, many of us Uh, many of you will be us. And they go on, our precarity as contingent faculty means that unlike UCSC graduate student workers, a wildcat strike probably isn't in the cards for us. Nevertheless, the COLA strike continues to inspire us. Protest is a learned art. 
and they also wrote that we may we must carry on the fight of the cola strikers and fend off the creeping evils of whatever new form the academy will take after the covid 19 crisis and so whether you've had a chance to read it or not or if you can just kind of digest that excerpt what's your take on their piece or their argument and what would you say to contingent faculty who are tired of teaching for low wages while working under extremely precarious conditions <laughs> yeah well um i actually haven't read that article but we we know uh josh and roxy so we, we know what, what the, the arguments are i think um <laughs> yeah um but yeah, it, it is a, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of interesting argument. Like I was TAing for a lecture, the winter quarter just gone and I wanted to withhold. Um, he's what they call a continuing lecturer. So he has been like, um, you know, teaching for years and years and has gained this sort of like bit of security and his whole life is based around this. But, um, you know, it, it's still in this precarious position where if they, if he doesn't get rehired, he doesn't get rehired. You know, it's, it's basically like that. Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a kind of weird situation for for lecturers at this university. You know, they're often like teaching many different jobs. You know, they call them freeway flyers, like working jobs at like different institutions around the area. Uh, um, like, so maybe you don't even have that primary union affiliation as being with uh, uh, UCAFT. You know, mm-hmm. so the possibility of going on on a strike. You know, they're already precarious. Um, they're often like not incredibly well in touch with uh, with other uh, other other lecturers uh, um, at the university because you know they, they don't have time to there's not like staff rooms or anything like this they often don't have uh, aren't that well in touch with like faculty I know in my department in the literature department they're not like invited to uh, to faculty meetings and things like this uh, which makes organizing very hard it, it often has to go through the like the organizers and like email chains and things like this. Um, but despite all of those barriers, we know that like precarious workers do go on strike because, uh, because the conditions are so bad and, you know, have, uh, um, well, because the conditions are so bad. <laughs> and I, I think like there's a lot more potential there than, um, than, than there would seem to be given the, the difficulties to organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm out of curiosity, how do you see the organizing that you're doing in relation to the struggle of adjuncts and contingent faculty now and in, in the future? And I ask because, uh, especially about the future, because in the past, I noticed maybe some, some disconnect between grad student organizing and the unstable part-time freeway flying work that awaits so many after they finish grad school. Uh, and because I'm just even thinking back to my uh, grad school experience and my work with my um, grad student worker union, uh, GA United, holler back at uh, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Uh, and the, I don't think we always made that connection, uh, at least uh, even though if we thought about it enough, and maybe that, that was the thing, we didn't want to think about it, you know, what the future w- would hold, uh, because it seemed like we had pretty dismal prospects. Uh, but we we weren't always making that connection between our struggle and the struggle of the you know majority of the the um, underprivileged disadvantaged professoriate and so I'm just curious how you see your struggle in relation to contingent faculty and adjuncts or if you do <laughs> maybe you've just got so much on your plate that you haven't been able to to ma- uh, think much about that either yeah I mean um, I, I, I think that that 
yeah, inextricably linked, like both different kinds of precarity, but both precarious uh, academic workers, uh, groups of precarious academic workers. Um, and I, th I think one kind of concrete way is that like, as, you know, as, as uh, tenure track positions disappear, like, more and more like you have to recognize for, for, for so many graduate students coming out of university that this is our future like uh, of um like you know um lecturer or adjunct work um but i, I think a, a kind of a, a, at santa cruz um yeah there might have been some of that d disconnect which what you're talking about there um james but i think so much uh faculty uh, organizing has, well, so much kinds of organizing that we haven't really seen before has sprung up through the Colin movement. Um, so the faculty organizing group, which uh, includes tenured and tenure track faculty, but also lecturers too, and, and like, you know, an overrepresentation of lecturers, I think, in, in the faculty organizing group. Um, but these have been really uh, incredibly helpful and supportive of us. They, they've been supportive of helping people through the student conduct process. Uh, they've been really helpful about sort of distributing resources to, to, um, to faculty about how to respond to the grading strike and how to sort of, how to, how to help the grad students through the grading strike, um, you know, have been there physically at the picket, um, things like this. So we, we, we have been really building these connections um, and, and closeness, and I think that will help us. Um, you know, AFT is out of contract right now, so they could go on strike. Um, and uh, you know, we will be there behind them uh, should they do that. Obviously. Yeah, I I actually don't necessarily think there has been a lot of disconnect. I think so many of us before COVID saw ourselves in AFT in the future as lecturers and now don't necessarily even see that um, or see no prospects. But it's not lost on us that for many lecturers, their position at the university is even more precarious than ours, um, that they can just not be rehired in the future with no explanation. They have no job securities. They don't even necessarily have health insurance through their employment yeah. at the university. Yeah. Um, and I think through, actually through our uh, talking to undergrads and explaining who does most of the teaching at the university is precarious workers, is contingent faculty, is graduate students. It's all people who make um, poverty wages who are, you know, who are scholars, who are researchers, who are activists, who are, you know, young professionals, who have families, who, um, who can barely support themselves on the wages that the university pays them. So I think through like explaining this shared condition of precarity to our undergrads, a lot of solidarity and a lot of sort of mutual understanding has been built. And that's that's definitely true that on the picket line and the sort of the support that the graduate student strike saw from faculty, lecturers were overrepresented in that group of supportive faculty. Um, and yeah, it's it's not even a question when they strike we and hopefully they do that uh, because they're they are out of contract. Um, will be will be there with them
Mm-hmm. I, I think for us as well, just like one last point about this, but like, um, you know, so much of, of the cold struggle has been like laying bare how, uh, how labor works at the university. Um, and I think maybe for like, you know, an undergraduate coming in, you know, or even a lot of graduate students, like it's, it's kind of clear to you, like, you know, grad students aren't very well paid and it seems like, but faculty are and faculty are okay, whatever. But then lecturers, like, you know, I, I think, I really think like not many people know when they're taking an undergraduate course, the difference between a lecturer and a tenured faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so a lot of this process of about saying like, Hey, graduates make this much money. And just like hammering that point home also has been like, we were doing teachings uh, for AFT when AFT was in bargaining um, saying like, Hey, uh, you know, your lecturer, <laughs> um, don't they just look like a faculty? They have all the same um, qualifications. You know, this person also also has a PhD. Your classes are as good, if not better, than you might get from your tenured faculty. They put all of this work in. Um, But they get, you know, they're they're so much more precarious. They're so much uh, more poorly paid. Um, And I think just, just kind of like, Laying that distinction out, drawing attention to, to the labor that's done has uh, been such a kind of central part of uh, mutual education that we've been doing this year. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Well, thank you for that uh, thorough response and in, uh, words of inspiration. I want to switch gears briefly just for a moment before wrapping up. I had noticed that a, an industrial workers of the world branch was just recently chartered there in Santa Cruz which I figured UCSC organizers had a hand in. And I wonder if you could comment on that and what the kind of strategy might be behind uh, starting an IWW branch there. Uh, Yulia, do you know more about this? I know a little bit about this. So actually (laughs) our undergrads are organizing with IWW and started a chapter here. Um, because they're the best, because they're amazing. <laughs> but uh, we also, so with the strike fund, when over 80 people got fired and we, uh, we, we actually had hundreds of thousands of dollars that people donated to the strike fund. That was absolutely incredible. But we needed to distribute it to people to pay, you know, for individuals to pay for their expenses and take care of everyone who got fired. And we actually, like, through uh, GoFundMe and like Venmo and stuff, we couldn't transfer and manage all of this money. And IWW helped us like store the money and distribute it and disperse it to everyone individually. Hmm. So it's, it's really incredible to see the chapter starting and like starting so strong and hmm. helping in like every struggle we are already actively in. And from the undergrads that I know who are organizing with IWW, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see um, what they are going to organize for here. And I should have prefaced my question clarifying for viewers that the IWW is a militant anti-capitalist union uh, promoting industrial democracy and worker ownership and control of uh, work of uh, workplaces and enterprises um, across industries and been around since 1905 and have I think seen a resurgence as of late they were mm-hmm. heavily involved in organizing the 
nationwide prisoner strikes a while back uh, with their incarcerated workers organizing committee and have also um, been organizing a lot um, of or been facilitating a lot of gig economy worker organizing and there are plenty of uh, folks who are involved in other unions like myself who are uh, dual card holders mm -hmm. who also have their red card uh, and so just a little IWW plug there and as we as we wrap up so with that I wanted to give both of you time to touch on whatever else you consider important or worth repeating and also if you could let folks know again how they could follow the COLA campaign the organizing for the ULP strike and otherwise support what you're doing. I, I can just do the plug for our social media. Um, so we have a website that is payasmoreucsc.com and pretty active social media accounts. We are on Twitter at payasmoreucsc and on Instagram also at payasmoreucsc. We, uh, so at Strike University, I held a meme making happy hour session. So yeah, our accounts have a lot of memes, um, but also a lot of, uh, you know, more useful information. Um, yeah, so if folks want to follow, we are pretty responsive on social media and all of the updates are on our website as well. Mm -hmm. Tony? I, I don't know. I just, just <laughs> Sorry, wanted to I say that. You, on the spot, totally. you make memes too. You make <laughs> <like> your memes. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to say that I really think that now is the time to go on strike. Um, you know, for academic workers everywhere and, and just everybody. Like, um, <laughs> I just want, like, if we didn't make that point clearly enough, I think, um, you know, that, that, that at, at least in. in um, in, 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 as, as grad workers, like, you know, the, the, the idea that the business should continue as usual um, in a pandemic is, uh, you know, we should consider the absurdity of it. And, and uh, you know, as these kind of like really sort of punitive and, uh, you know, kind of scary measures kind of sweep through with the, with the, with the crisis, like we should, uh, we should consider withholding labor. <laughs> yeah, I, I concur with that wholeheartedly. I think um, it's really important. Like, I think the time of crisis is precisely when workers should be organizing, is precisely when workers should be withholding their labor and fighting back. Uh, because if we don't, we will come out of this crisis worse off than we were before. And we were barely surviving before COVID started. So if we don't strike now, if we don't fight back now, I don't know if there is a way forward. So I actually don't want to end on such a bleak note, but also, I don't know, striking together with like hundreds of my comrades has been the most invigorating and the most ex exciting experience of my entire life. So it's not just yep. about it, it, you know, it is about our survival. It is about dem demanding a living wage. Like it's, it's shocking to me that it's such a difficult fight for such a basic thing, but it is also an incredible bonding experience that really created uh, a community that 
I always wanted to be a part of. So I do recommend. It's <laughs> 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 a well, 10 out of 10. We'll try again. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Would recommend to my friends. Yes, 10 out of 10. All right. Well, I think that is a memorable note to end on. Yulia and Tony, thanks again for being on the New American Baccalaureate podcast. Yeah, thank you, James. Thanks, James. That was our interview with Yulia and Tony. You're listening to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. I'm here again with my co-host, Eli Kramer. Uh, And Eli, since you weren't able to uh, be present, virtually present for the interview, I wanted to ask you what particularly resonated. I know you had a chance to listen to some of it. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, I think the same as our initial discussion. I was curious as the, the movement has progressed, especially during this uh, a kind of unusual, uncertain world moment about what do you think the progress for organizing on campuses are like? Uh, and in particular in three dimensions. Uh, First is like what seems like the lessons or possibilities uh, about which uh, methods are most successful for organizing at the moment, whether more radical or uh, more within the kind of official channels and expectations about what organizing means. Uh, Related to that about official versus unofficial modes of organizing, whereas kind of union sanctioned organizing uh, and the viability of that and necessity of that as a direction to go. Um, and then third, and perhaps the kind of the one I'm really after, is uh, what, like, what does this actually mean for the ability to make some change in higher education? Has anything changed last time we talked? Do you feel more optimistic, more gloomy, more uncertain? Uh, so, so yeah, again, I think it's like dimensions of the official and unofficial nature of strikes and what lessons are to be learned there uh, uh, how radical ought they to be and where, what hope might we have for their ability to make uh, more dignity and work in higher education. Right. And so one thing that occurred to me is that it probably wouldn't have been possible, this is my, I guess, educated hypothesis, probably wouldn't have been possible for uh, folks at UCSC who are interested in getting a COLA, the cost of living adjustment, to get union support if they hadn't initiated that organizing in an unsanctioned way back in the fall. The Wildcat grading strike, of course, was not endorsed by the UAW, and there was perhaps a little bit of attention uh, a while back between the statewide union, UAW 2865, and some of the organizers on the ground at UC Santa Cruz who were dissatisfied with the minor to moderate gains that they were able to obtain in the last contract, which they considered insufficient as regards, you know, being able to actually pay rent on a teaching assistant salary there in the beach city of Santa Cruz, where rent's pretty egregious, even more so than in other places throughout California and in other uh, cities where uh, UC campuses reside. And so having to you know, engage in that wildcat strike, which is not an easy thing to do, and it's also you know, kind of scary, right? Because there's something to be said for official backing. You have the funding and the resources and 
the communication distribution channels, something that I believe organizers were cut off from uh, at least initially uh, back in the fall, at least in, in part. And so having that uh, to help buttress the struggle, I think is really important, but I don't think that uh, it would have been possible or it would have been really difficult to get the union on board without folks there taking direct action and deciding what they needed to do there based on their, uh, the circumstances they were con confronting directly uh, and then, you know, uh, acting accordingly um, as opposed to, you know, pressing for, you know, the higher ups in the union to uh, make a decision about, say, you know, trying to reopen the contract or something. Although, again, once the wildcat strike started, uh, there were discussions about, you know, could we reopen a side letter? Could we open up a side letter to add to the contract? So there was some uh, strategizing with the uh, official union uh, earlier on. But now the fact that they're trying to build toward an unfair labor practice strike, I, I think that could be really powerful, right? Especially if it extends beyond Santa Cruz, which seems to be the direction that it's going, that other campuses, grad student workers at other campuses would be involved too. And you know, the UC can't, I mean, can't run without grad student workers right? oh, and without contingent faculty, by the way, uh, as a lecturer who teaches at a UC campus when I can get classes, uh, our union is currently without a contract, has been since January. And so it's no longer illegal for us to strike. Uh, we could do that uh, with you know, full endorsement from UCAFT. And that's something that, that might happen depending upon how our ongoing negotiations play out. Uh, and then, I, yeah, Eli, what, what about you? What, what is your take on uh, trying to uh, you know, figure out whether the official or unofficial channels are, uh, have, offer the most opportunity for creating the kind of higher ed uh, world and space that you know, folks at UC Santa Cruz are trying to bring into being? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there, I was even struck with what you said, that obviously a diversity of tactics and moving from unsanctioned to sanctioned, kind of collaborating with sanctioned channels, if and when those are available, can be a really viable strategy. Um, and it definitely seems to take heart that no one chewed each other out for ways they tried to handle the situation was really invaluable as building towards kind of future opportunity. You know, I didn't want to do this with appropriating in ways that are obnoxious civil rights movement, which everyone does, but I'll do it just for the uh, useful heuristic of uh, a little bit of Malcolm and Martin together is always mm -hmm. a strong organizing strategy that having a more radical edge that then gets reinforced by something that can be put at the negotiating table can be a really strong mix. And, you know, I, I think part of why that heuristic came to mind too is something I miss on larger left organizing across the U.S. seems to be sorely lacking the ability to be able to bridge that span. So there's, there's something hardening of seeing a little bit of that in California. Um, and then, you know, as for, you know, this particular world moment and the ability to build more fair labor practices. Honestly, I'm probably with uh, our interview with Leonard Wax, which we did, uh, it was made available a few days ago, uh, that it's just a really uncertain that we're ripe with possibilities, but it's hard to see at such a big moment of transition what's going to be really available as so much upheaval is likely to happen. Uh, and 
something else that I, I had mentioned, the the COLA campaign was really popped off at these different UC campuses, including, much to my surprise, somewhat, at UCR. And uh, I just received a message from the UCR uh, for COLA folks, grad students who are kind of involved in, in that work. And one of the things they noted is that, and I, I wasn't aware of this, but UCR has been granted uh, $29,734,626 from the CARES Act, uh, much more than I realized. And of course, there's at least hitherto little transparency as to regard how that money is going to be allocated. Uh, and, you know, a, a portion of it's supposed to be allocated to, you know, emergency financial aid to students, but that's, I, that remains to be seen just uh, how and if that money will be you know, put to use in a way that you know students students need and are asking for uh, that I think has been the catalyst for some of the student strikes that I've mentioned that have kind of swept the country too in, in light of the COVID-19 pandemic you know you have the kind of hasty transition in some cases to online all online education conducted in just a matter of weeks or even less time uh, without you know adequate time for instructors to prepare for online pedagogy and there's also of course the campuses being shut down sometimes students being kicked out of residence halls and not really given many options and then also you know with the campuses shut down they're of course not able to access many of the amenities which is how you know colleges many colleges universities today kind of market themselves and make themselves viable options in this sort of consumer model. It's like, you know, look how awesome our rec center is. Not that I have anything against rec centers per se, uh, but that and, you know, sports stadiums and, and all the rest sometimes are what uh, attract students and what students see themselves, you know, paying so much money and tuition for, even though many think the number is still egregious, even with all those amenities. But now those are taken away and many colleges and universities have not opted to reduce tuition in concert uh, with uh, the closures. And that's irked a lot of students, understandably so. And so uh, we've seen, uh, I mentioned some of the, the student tuition strikes and all the rest and how I think inspiration has been drawn from what folks at UC Santa Cruz started, which is really, really cool. Uh, I wondered what your thoughts on that are just in relation to the, the pandemic and how it's kind of exacerbating and bringing to the fore some of these underlying crises in higher ed. Yeah, and, and maybe this will be a kind of shift to a, a final thought for me. I think the most striking uh, aspect of that is really simply uh, uh, unprecedented terrain. And I don't just mean the pandemic, um, higher education institutions and particularly people in administrative roles are really in uncharted territory with institutions uh, so financially disrupted you know, as this paradigm of kind of hotel amenities and a, a, a skyrocketing tuition coupled with uh, partially because of that uh, uh, and as they as there's a kind of drop in the traditional student body imagined for enrollment I think people find themselves in a terrain they don't know quite how to handle. And instead of going to creative uh, new opportunities for what higher education could be, some discuss the stuff we've discussed about higher education as a kind of social center, they revamp into old austerity thinking. Um, so I think 
with the right pushing in certain directions, maybe there's really an opening on campuses as people really don't know what to do. And even if they pretend otherwise, administrators are just as clueless as everyone else, even on just like, we just got this hunk of money, how do we distribute it equitably? Uh, in many ways, for the first time, there's opportunity to think about things or push people to think about things in ways they've never had to before. So I, 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 I see the uncertainty as an advantage to organizing, I guess is what I wanted to suggest, that administrators here are just as confused and unsure about what to do next. And organizing on campus is not just to push them to do fair and equitable practices, but to lead a vision of what their campuses might be and might be doing could really be quite powerful at the moment if, if used wisely. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, so- uh, I appreciate uh, the angle, yeah. I don't know, just thinking for you, I guess, where does your hope stand for all of this making a change, especially if you know someone else who feels the precarity of their position? Well, I, I don't know if, if you recall when you were listening to the interview, I, I asked a question about a recent Chronicle of Higher Ed piece by Josh Brahinsky and Roxy Power, who are two lecturers at UCSC, also members of UCAFT, involved in some of the uh, union organizing work that I've been somewhat plugged into as well. And they, they, the title of their piece was something to the fact is like, now, yes, now is the time for contingent faculty to you know, organize and take action. Uh, and, uh, you know, with a not surprising sentiment coming from uh, folks in Santa Cruz who were no doubt, again, inspired by the, and able to directly witness what grad student workers in conjunction with undergrads there too, uh, had been doing. The, the militant action and, and what they were able, and the solidarity that they were able to build as a result. Uh, and that alone, just as a quick aside, I think is uh, something worth championing. So even if, you know, it, say, the ULP strike, if and when that goes down, is unsuccessful, um, and if the terminated uh, grad student workers who had previously engaged in Wildcat Strike or the teaching strike that uh, that went down, if they are not reinstated or you know, offered assistantships going forward, first of all, that I think would be a grave mistake by the university, and I and I uh, still hold out hope and firmly believe that you know with the right uh, type of tactics and strategy and, and solidarity uh, that can be that issue can be reversed. But if if it wasn't, I think the kind of solidarity that's been cultivated just by doing the work itself, some of which takes place literally, you know, like had taken place literally on the ground in physical spaces on campus, but also, and now increasingly, uh, through digital network communications and those channels. I had mentioned in the, the interview, because I wrote that piece for Protean Magazine, about the dynamic that, uh, that folks at UCSC were kind of straddling between organizing in physical spaces and in digital spaces. And this was before the pandemic even started, right? Uh, and part of that was out of necessity because some, you know, teaching assistants or you know, international students were not going to be present there during breaks and other, you know, periods where they might need to be meeting and that sort of thing. Uh, and plus not everybody's on campus all the time. That's, of course, uh, a characteristic of adjunct labor too, so maybe something that contingent faculty can learn from. Uh, and, and so the, the way that, you know, they've been able to, I think, take some of those 
practices that they familiarize themselves with and and maintain that that kind of virtual presence and not let the pandemic uh you know bring the cola movement to a halt because you know as i said in the interview it's not really their first rodeo in terms of um, organizing through these uh, you know electronic communication channels and that sort of thing and so uh, and by the way, since this is part two of that podcast, I contemplated doing part two of that story. Somebody should. I don't know if I have the energy right now to do it, but uh, it's, you know, as horrible as, as it is, given the circumstances of COVID-19, I feel like that piece was kind of prescient in a way uh, because, you know, it anticipated uh, this sort of organizing that's shifted to the, the virtual world, but has not ceased. And I think there are opportunities to be explored there that can be part of some of the strategizing and, and tactics that, that we mentioned. Uh, but to return to what I was getting at, the lecturers at UCSC, Brahinsky and, and Power, right, uh, their piece had me thinking back to my grad school days, our grad school days, Eli, at, at uh, Southern Law University Carbondale and uh, our involvement with uh, GAU, Grad Assistance United, shout out to GAU, and, and how, you know, I don't know if we made that explicit connection with, I don't, I don't think we did, at least it wasn't, you know, at the forefront of my mind, that connection with the struggle of lecturers. I mean, of course, you know, the faculty there at SIUC went on strike in, I think it was 2011, and, you know, Grad Assistance, while uh, we opted, well, uh, it, we did not go on strike with them, which I think was a mistake. Uh, nevertheless, you know, many of us were out there on, on the picket lines. Uh, but aside from that, I don't think there was a lot of solidarity work taking place or a lot of, you know, even thinking about the fact that as grad students, many of us, you know, you know after we get our degrees, or in some cases, you know, some folks who don't, but nevertheless want to remain in higher ed, uh, that there aren't, you know, there's dwindling opportunities for tenure track positions, right? And so our futures were more than likely going to be that of adjunct labor. Uh, but I'm not sure that we sufficiently uh, took that into account in order to kind of bridge some of the uh, institutional divides that separate the organizing work of, say, ad or potential uh, organizing work of adjuncts and grad students. What are your thoughts on that? Because you know, you're, this is you know, some of this is you know, um, you went through this as well. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I definitely feel that as well. I think the pandemic uh, has certainly. What was I going to say? It's not just the pandemic, the kind of increasing precarity of most positions only exacerbated by the pandemic has, I think, made people identify, uh, given people opportunity, identify across different constituencies in higher education. And mm -hmm. I think once the, the kind of glory of the academic prestige and the possibilities for it increasingly bends and disappears, the opportunity for solidarity across this work grows. So maybe California is kind of a a first gleaning of that recognition becoming stronger. Um, I mean, maybe just as a, a way to finish up here, what do you think about that as well? Do you see a, a growing group of people recognizing themselves as part of a, a, a same contingent labor group? And maybe do you see that as possible to extend even beyond higher education? 
into other areas. That's what really uh, piques my interest and sort of what I think might be necessary that extension beyond higher ed. And we mentioned in the interview, right, a lot of uh, strikes and labor actions are planned for May Day when this podcast should be available. Uh, for example, workers at Amazon and Target and Instacart are going on strike. Uh, and, you know, workers throughout the gig economy uh, have been uh, building up for these various types of collective actions. And that's notable too, right? Because higher ed is increasingly become part of that gig economy. And there's, you know, a book that I, that I mentioned, Professors in the Gig Economy, about contingent faculty organizing. And so I think with, you know, some of the uh, reintroduction of austerity measures, whether it's through like furloughs or layoffs or, uh, you know, refusals to, to grant the wage increases that many were hoping for and that you know, many deemed necessary, like in thinking about us as uh, lecturers at part of UCAFT, right, in the middle of our negotiations for a new contract. Now I think some of that is in jeopardy uh, as far as trying to, to win those improvements in income or, or salary. And so with that, you know, I think there are opportunities for uh, collaborations with with others who are facing similarly dire circumstances. I do think that there uh, are major hurdles to overcome when it comes to you know the class stratifications within higher ed and within society more generally too, for that matter. Uh, and you know the two tier system being the the major obstacle to you know across set faculty solidarity. And, and I don't see that changing in the immediate term, but that doesn't mean there aren't going to be these chances for lecturers to unite with grad student workers, to unite with students. And of course, there's always going to be the, the radical and more militant, you know, tenure line faculty members or, or tenured faculty members who are going to put themselves out there too. And, and you know, I think the onus is upon us, those of us involved in these struggles that are maybe uh, up to this point limited to higher education, to maybe uh, figure out how we can get beyond the proverbial ivory tower and uh, start to work with folks in our, you know, beyond the campus community, right? Under or under re, uh, reinterpreting or recasting this notion of the campus community to more fully integrate the community writ large and some of the you know, various community struggles that you know can be uh, adopted as, as as our own, or that we can you know um, begin to uh, begin to unite with some of those who are doing the kinds of community organizing that has become increasingly necessary during the pandemic, when you know countless numbers of people are without work and are receiving paltry stimulus checks that are not going to be enough for you know, for folks to afford rent and groceries and, and all the rest. And that that is going to affect uh, a lot of us and many of us harder than others. Uh, on that note, uh, actually, the uh, New American Baccalaureate is going to be having a series of webinars. The first is on May 5th, and then May 19th and June 2nd. And I think a big theme of these discussions uh, in it will be discuss how residential colleges can uh, reimagine both the kind of work they do, the students they work with, but also new kinds of equitable contracts, thinking beyond the binaries of what 
higher education contracts be, can be and what campuses can be in their local communities. So if you're interested, there'll be a registration connection through the website. Um, and we would be happy for you to register and join on for these conversations. Uh, on behalf of James Anderson and myself, I want to thank you for tuning in and we look forward to you coming in